Good morning, Battle Creek. Uh, as we jump in today, can you help me welcome everyone that's joining us in the chapel and those that are watching online? We're so glad that you're here with us today. In fact, if you're watching online, I would love for you to share the experience with someone, whether you're watching on Facebook or YouTube. Invite them to join in on what God is doing here today. And, and it's crazy to think that tomorrow is the day. Uh, tomorrow kicks off the first of our two kids' camps here at our Broken Arrow campus. And so I just want to be encouraging you to be praying throughout the course of this week. Be praying for kids and for those that are serving. Pray that the gospel would be clearly communicated and heard and received. Because we believe that God wants to do more in the next couple of weeks than we can even imagine. And so, again, be praying for them. And, and then also continue to be praying and planning for our summer offering. Uh, if you missed the last couple of weekends, or maybe you're newer to Battle Creek Church, next weekend we are going to receive our summer offering offering to help fuel and maximize all of the next-gen ministries throughout the course of this summer. And so if I know many of us have all-in commitments, and so if that's you here today, I want to encourage you to do what so many of us are going to do, which is to give a significant portion of your all-in commitment next weekend. And maybe you're someone that's newer to Battle Creek, or you've been giving faithfully week in and week out, but you didn't make an all-in commitment. I just want you to know that every dollar that you give is a part of our All In initiative. And All In, it's about helping all people of all ages grow in their faith and their trust in Jesus. It's about you, and it's about me, and it's about the kids and the students who are going to be attending camps. And so be praying and planning, and then join me next week as we receive this year's summer offering. Now, last weekend, we began our series called Battle Ready. And one of the things that we said is that life is full of battles. Some of them are, are very small and manageable, but others are daunting. But either way, life is full of battles. It's not a matter of if the battle will come, but it's when the battle will come. And we also said that the battle is real, even if it's not obvious. Even if it's not obvious, the battle is real. And so we laid out some countermeasures that we can take and identified that really the primary battle plan is to avoid the way of the wicked and pursue the way of God. That's the key. And for believers, for those of us who have put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we know that the great news that God has won the war. Uh, we've read the end of the book, and we know how this story ends. God is ultimately and eternally victorious. But even though we can be confident that God has won the war, we also know that the war has many battles. And so today, what do we do when we lose a battle? What's the battle plan when, when we've blown it, when we just have crashed and burned in life? And the answer uh, simply put, is that we need to recalibrate. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a few steps that we can take to recalibrate our lives when we have lost a battle. And so if you have a Bible with you today, go ahead and open to the book of Psalms. Uh, that's where we're going to be. If you've got a Bible app, feel free to, to go to the events, the live events that are there. Search Battle Creek Church. You're going to have the sermon notes and everything that you need. But Psalms, as we said last week, is really the prayer book of the Bible. You've got different writers with different backgrounds writing in different styles, and they captured the prayers that they prayed and the songs that they sung and really gave us words that we can pray and sing through the challenges that we face in life. 
And last week, we looked at a wisdom psalm, but today we're going to look at a psalm of lament. And so Psalm 51 is where we're going to be. And you know, psalms of lament in Scripture generally assume the author's innocence. It's a crying out, a response to the fallen and broken world in which evil is very present. I don't think it's any surprise that the majority of the psalms are psalms of lament. It's a response to life's pain and hardship. However, there are a few psalms of lament that were written in response to one's guilt, a response of repentance or a psalm of repentance over what's been done. And this is one of those. In fact, before we even get to the first verse, you probably have an editorial note at the top of the psalm that says something like this. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. How would you like for that to be the introduction every time your song is played on the radio? You know, most of us, we, we've heard the story. You know, it comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. You've got King David who's in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong thing with the wrong people. It's a bad, bad combination. And it was springtime, a time when kings would go off to war. And, and David, uh, who the Bible portrays as this mighty warrior, he sends his army off to war, but he chose to hang back. He chose to stay at home. He, he disengaged in the battle. Remember, we said last week that when we become disengaged in the battle, it is easy to slip into sin and to find ourselves in the enemy's camp, which is exactly what happened to King David. David goes out on his rooftop and he's overlooking the city. And, and from his vantage point at the palace, uh, he can see everything, including the places of bathing, which were typically outside so that the, the, the water could be warmed by the hot Middle Eastern sun. And, and I'll just confess that I, I doubt that this was the first time he had looked. He knew what he would see that day. It was the time of day when people were out bathing and, and he saw her. Bathsheba, and he desired her. In fact, interestingly, uh, the language that's used in the Hebrew when David sees and desires Bathsheba, it's the very same language that you see in Genesis 3 when Eve sees and desires the fruit in the Garden of Eden. I, I, we're not even to the passage yet, but listen, the enemy knows about our sinful desires. The enemy knows what you desire and what I desire, and he will do everything that he can to exploit those desires. Bathsheba was married to one of David's elite warriors, and even though he knew that, he sent for her, and he slept with her, and she became pregnant. He initiated his wrongdoing, and I think much of the troubles that we face in life is because of the decisions that we make and the actions that we take. And so David, he's recognizing in this moment the implications of what he's done. And so he tries to cover it up. He calls uh, her husband home, Uriah, to come and from the battlefield to be with his wife. But that doesn't work. And so he then sanctions Uriah's death. And David's bad decision we see just leads to another bad decision and another bad decision, all to try to conceal his wrongdoing. And we get to the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11. And the final verse says that, that what David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we start chapter 12. 
begins with God sending his prophet Nathan to confront David. And I know we've all heard the story in Sunday school. David, uh, he goes and he tells him about how a rich man with a large flock of sheep and cattle stole the one lamb that a poor man had. And so David was furious. And he proclaimed that that rich man must die. And Nathan at this point, he looks at David and he's like, bro, you are that man. And David's broken. Have you been there? Just overwhelmed with remorse and regret, knowing that, that your decisions and, and your actions have, have hurt someone that you love, wishing that you could go back in time to change the words that you said or, or where you went that night or who you were with, you feel like you've just blown the battle. And that feeling, that's, that's the place that David is writing from today when we begin in verse 1 of Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins, or some of your translations will say transgressions. Wash me clean from my guilt or my iniquity. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Now, last week, we saw a progression in the words that the psalmist chose. And we actually see another literary progression that's happening here today. And so in your Bible, here's what I want you to do. I want you to underline the words blot out, wash, and purify, or, or cleanse in some translations. And then circle the words sins or transgressions, guilt, iniquity, and sin. There is a progression of intensity that the verbs are trying to convey to us in this time. The word blot out, it means to erase from a book, to strike from the record. And you've got wash, which is not about taking a bath, but, but it's of washing clothes. The picture is of scrubbing clothes against a rock over and over again to try to remove the stain. And then you've got purify or cleanse, which takes it a step further. It indicates that the purification of something, it needs to be from the inside out. You see, if washing is about sanitizing the, the outside, then purifying is all about the inside. And these verbs are then matched with three distinct words for sin. You have transgressions or sins that is the willful and direct defiance of God. It is to do wrong, to intentionally deviate from what is right. You've got guilt or iniquity. And that word implies bending or, or twisting. The picture here is to intentionally twist the truth or to take the wrong path, which we talked about last week. And finally, you've got sin, which simply means to miss the mark. And, and all of this poetic progression that we see is meant to be all-encompassing. When David says that he recognizes his rebellion, he's saying, God, I recognize there are multiple facets to this thing that it is complex, that I've made a mess of everything. And God, oh, I need you. I need you to help me pick up the pieces and put back my life together. David recognizes that we can't fix what we've broken alone. We may hit rock bottom by ourselves, but we don't stand back up by ourselves. We need people around us. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe you feel like, the world is just caving in and, and you don't see a way out. You're haunted by what's been done in the past and you just can't shake it. 
The truth is when we have crashed and burned in the battle, the first step that we need to take to recalibrate is this. We need to admit my part. Admit your part. David uses this word, my, over and over again in verses one through three. He says, my transgressions and my iniquity and my sin, my rebellion. David recognized that he needed to own it, which is very different than Adam and Eve, who tried to blame it. You see, you cannot address what you will not admit. Refusing to acknowledge sin and accept responsibility, it keeps us deceived. It's like putting on a blindfold and pretending like the outside world doesn't exist. Ignoring it will not erase that it happened. It only prolongs our guilt. In fact, 1 John 1.8, it tells us that if we claim to have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves. We're not living in the truth. God already knows your sin. And so you owe it to yourself to be honest with yourself. And David continues to admit his part uh, when he says in the next verse, Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. That's the same language that we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Now, I don't know about you, but verse 4 has always caused me to pause. David says, against you and you alone, I have sinned. Really? What about Bathsheba? What about Bathsheba's husband, Uriah? I bet Uriah's parents would love to interject a few words here. And it's important for us to realize David is not saying that his sin didn't involve or hurt other people. In fact, Scripture tells us that you can sin against your own body. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 18. It also says that you can sin against other people, but all sin, whether it's committed against yourself or someone else, is ultimately against the God who has created all things. In fact, Numbers 5, 6 tells us that any man or woman who wrongs another in any way is unfaithful to the Lord. And so sin against others is always and ultimately a sin against God. And David is using hyperbolic language to try to stress that point for us today. And he continues on in verse 5 when he says, For I was born a sooner. Wait. Nope, that's not right. (laughs) Just seeing if you're paying attention this morning. It says, I was born a sinner, which I guess sinner, sooner. I mean, you might be able to interchange those words. Listen. I poked fun at the pokes last week. I just need to make sure that you know I have allegiances to no one, okay? And I'm not born in Oklahoma, so I can't even say that I was born, although I was born in Las Vegas, uh, which is Sin City. And so I guess I can relate to David when he says, I was born a sinner. For I was born a sinner, David says, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. The reality is this is true for every single one of us. We were all born into a corrupt and broken world that has been marred by sin. We have sinful thoughts and behaviors as far back as we could remember in our earliest days. I mean, you know, it does not take much time with some two-year-olds before you think they need Jesus. (laughs) And David is saying that being sinful at birth is not an excuse. No one made David sin. In fact, when we lose a sin battle, I think one of the easiest things for us to try to do is to blame, uh, is to assign blame to someone or something else. But we can't blame our genetics. 
We can't blame our family dysfunction that we've experienced. We can't blame our sin nature. And, and I realize that our genetics and our upbringing, our experience, it all shapes us and, and it causes us to have certain tendencies and inclinations. But hear me when I say our sin, our sin is our choice. So we must admit it. We must acknowledge it. But admitting your part is not enough. The second step that we need to take to recalibrate is this. We must be sorry about sin. Be sorry about sin. This isn't just about saying sorry. For any of us that have siblings, you know it's very possible to say sorry without meaning it. You know, I've got an older brother and a younger brother and a younger sister. And of all of the the kids in, in the house that I grew up in, I was the most stubborn child at least according to my mom. I I wouldn't say that I was stubborn. I would say that I was right. Uh, But she would say that I was stubborn. And and I would agree with her that I was definitely the most stubborn when it came to apologizing. As a kid, I had a lot of truth without a lot of love. And so I was asked to apologize quite a bit. And and my mom would not allow me to just simply say sorry, uh, even though I tried. Uh, I would have to sit in my room on the corner of my bed until I could say sorry and mean it, which was a serious dilemma for me on many occasions. Uh, In fact, I'll just admit, sometimes it took hours uh, of me sitting on the edge of my bed, but eventually the grace of God uh, would overcome, and instead of my lips just simply saying sorry, my heart, my heart would become sorrowful. I would recognize what I had done and how that had impacted someone else. And that's really what being sorry about sin is. It's being sorrowful. It's about the heart. See, true sorrow leads us to deal with the root issue. It leads us to this place of repentance. True sorrow, it leads us to a place where we never want to retrace the steps that we've taken. Sorrow leads us to this place of restoration and renewal. In fact, we see David's sorrow when he's longing to be reconciled here in verse 7. He says, Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins, but remove the stain of my guilt. Again, in your Bible, here's what I want you to underline. Underline, purify, wash, and remove. I don't know if you noticed, these are the same three words that we underlined in verses one through three, but did you notice that they're now in reverse order? This is what we see as a chiasm. And chiasms in scripture create emphasis. They're intended to grab our attention and to act as an arrow pointing to the heart of what the author is trying to communicate. And in this case, the focal point here is the word purify. Purify, don't miss this. Yes, David does want his blood-stained hands to be washed clean. And yes, he does want his record to be expunged and to be blotted out. But he sees that none of that matters as much as the purification of his heart. That's where it starts. It doesn't start with just simply saying sorry. That's image management. If the primary focus when we've sinned, when we've fallen short, is to try to just blot out the stain, is to try to just cover up our record, that's called a cover-up. It's a PR stunt. And let me just tell you that if that's the focus, rest assured you will lose the battle again. 
Focusing on image management is an indication that you're not really sorry. When you are truly sorrowful, you start with the heart, purifying from the inside out. And that's why David continues in verse 10 with one of the most famous verses that he writes. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal or a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Complete restoration includes the renewal of our heart, which is something that we can't do without God. You see, our heart is the seat from which our words and our actions flow, but only God can regenerate our heart. Only God can renew our spirit. And if we don't invite God to do what only God can do, then it's only a matter of time before our unrepentant heart becomes a hard heart. And a hard heart prevents us from experiencing the presence of God. You see that David pleads with God in verse 11 to not take his Holy Spirit from him. He prays this because he watched it happen to King Saul, his father-in-law. And in fact, I think this sets up a theological question that is worth pausing to address here. Many people in the church will read a verse like this in the psalm and say, well, does God or will God ever take his Holy Spirit from me? In fact, maybe this is a question that you've wrestled with. And to understand this question, we need to understand that, or to answer the question, we need to understand that God's redemptive plan unfolds throughout Scripture. Remember, this psalm was written pre-Jesus. And so in the Old Testament, God's Spirit would come upon people, and it would be among people, but nowhere in the Old Testament does God's Spirit permanently indwell people. God's Spirit would come upon the judges and upon the prophets and and the kings for the sake of leading them and instructing them. And David knew this because he had experienced it and had seen it happen with others. But occasionally, we see God's Spirit depart based on their heart. We see it happen with King Saul in 1 Samuel 16, 14. We see it happen with, with Samson in Judges 16, 20. And that's why David asked that God not take his Holy Spirit from him. But as we see the redemptive plan unfold in Scripture, we see prophets of the Old Testament prophesying about a day that was coming, a day when God's Spirit would be poured out on all who believe, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, everyone. And that day was the day of Pentecost, which we read about in Acts 2. And so now, because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell believers permanently. But we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit. But we cannot lose the Holy Spirit. In fact, Ephesians 1, it promises that when we believe in Jesus, when we trust him, that our salvation is sealed by the Spirit. And God doesn't break his promises. He is faithful through and through. And so we know that God will not take his Holy Spirit from us, but we can resist the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. You see, a hard heart, it will not only squelch the Holy Spirit's work, but God will often withhold blessings from us. And so we must grieve our sin. We must be sorrowful and and repent. And, And so the first step that we need to take is to admit my part. The second step is to be sorry about sin. And the third step, if we want to recalibrate, is to find forgiveness and freedom in God. If our sin is against God, then ultimately we must go to God 
in order to make it right. And the great news of John, of 1 John 1, 9, it tells us that if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us, that he will cleanse us from all of our wickedness. And we see that, that David, he uses the word my over and over in verse uh, one through three. He said, my transgressions and my iniquity, my sin, my rebellion. He's admitting his part. But then once we get to verse 12, see how the focus flips. It becomes all about God. We see the word you and your over and over again. Let's continue reading in verse 12. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You see, despite David's sin, even though he had wrecked his life and the lives of others, he is confident that forgiveness and freedom is still possible. Not just freedom and forgiveness, but joy. Someone needs to hear that and be reminded of that today. The presence of sin creates an absence of joy. Uh, but when we trust Jesus, when we acknowledge our sin, when we repent of it, God will restore our joy to us. He will fill us up. And, and that doesn't mean that God removes all of the consequences of our sin. The reality is there are consequences to the choices that we make and the actions we take. If you slander your coworker, you may lose your job. If you drive under the influence, you may be fined and may even be prison, imprisoned. If you overeat at Taco Bell, there's consequences. In fact, that's a great example of how our sin can affect others. <laughs> if you're dishonest, if you're deceptive in a relationship, you lose trust, you lose intimacy. Sometimes you lose the relationship. There are consequences to sin. And some things are fixed immediately. Some things are fixed later, but some things are never fixed. David's remorse and his repentance, it didn't bring Uriah back to life. In fact, as we read throughout scripture, we see that David's household is never the same again. And so even though we may continue to experience the consequences or the pain of our sin, we can simultaneously experience joy. That's what he's saying. It is possible for them to coexist together. And so here, regardless of your past, regardless of what you've done, God offers forgiveness and freedom. And when we experience forgiveness and freedom, it's not just from something, but it's for something. In fact, in verse 13 and, and, and verse 18, we see that our joy, it makes us want to help others. What has happened for us, we want to see in other people's lives. And then we see in verse 14 and 15 that our joy leads us to worship. That the appropriate response to the goodness of God is to praise him. In fact, the word for praise in verse 15 is very specific. Uh, Hebrew is an incredibly picturesque language, uh, much more than the English language. What we translate as the word praise in English can actually be one of many, many Hebrew words. And this word for praise in verse 15 is, is my favorite of all the words. It's the word tehillah, which sounds a lot like the word, right? 
Come on, we're in church. We got to have fun. And, and amazingly enough, just wait, it gets better. The, the words tequila and tequila actually have the same outcome. Uh, here's, the, here's what it means. It means exuberant singing <laughs> or a spontaneous song. Guys, I've been waiting all week to share this with you. It is exciting. The forgiveness and the freedom that God gives to us, it leads to joyful songs. The forgiveness, it always gives us a deeper understanding of worship. And our praise is not just for us. It's for others as well. It's, it's evangelistic. It's never just about us. When we sing, we are declaring to ourselves and to those around us what God has done and what God is doing and what God is going to continue to do. And so we proclaim God's power and his ability to forgive, his power and his ability to bring freedom in our life, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've experienced. Our praise becomes a part of our testimony. It is an overflow of what God has done in our heart. It reflects the posture of our heart. And church, that's ultimately what God desires of us. When we've blown it, when we've made a mess of the battle, when we've ruined our life, he wants our heart. In fact, look at how King David concludes this psalm. He says, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. You see, when you offer your heart to God, He won't reject it. Our heart and our spirit may be broken, but Psalm 34 verse 18 tells us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, that He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so healing, it begins with our brokenness and with our remorse. God is far more concerned about our inner being than about our outer doing. He does want us to offer external sacrifices of praise and of time, of generosity, but there is an internal priority. Everything that we do as believers, it is an outflow of what God has done in our heart, of what he has made right, only then are those sacrifices honoring and pleasing to God. And so to recalibrate when we've lost the battle, we admit our part, but we're sorrowful about our sin and we find forgiveness and freedom in God. We face many, many battles in life and occasionally we may fail, but the good news church this morning is that our God never will. He will never fail us. And before we conclude today, I want to lead us in a time of, of confession and, and reflection. And so I want to invite you at this time to go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes with me. God wants complete transparency from the depths of our inner being. He wants to bring light to the places where we would prefer to conceal. And I recognize here today that not everyone sitting in this room is at a moment of having crashed and burned. I get that. But the truth is we are all just one decision away from wrecking our life. And maybe here today, God wants to deal with a dent before it becomes a disaster. 
And so to begin in this moment, would you pray and would you ask God to search your heart today? Ask him, what's preventing you from living victoriously? Maybe you've held on to something for years without repenting. In fact, it was at least a year, if not more, before David was confronted by the prophet Nathan. His repentance didn't come immediately. And so ask God to search your heart and to reveal any area where you need to repent and admit your part. Go ahead and spend a couple of moments in prayer now. you pray and ask God to break your heart and to break your spirit over, over sin. Maybe God is asking you to go back and, and apologize to someone, not just to say sorry, but to sorrowfully acknowledge the hurt that's been caused. And maybe you're here today and you've already confessed uh, to some sin a while back, but maybe you still need to make amends. And God, uh, David was not a man after God's own heart because he was perfect. He was called a man after God's own heart because he yielded his heart to God. He pursued and he chased after the heart of God and the heart of God is reconciliation. And so pray and, and ask God to break your heart, to break your spirit over sin and, and to give you the resolve to take the next step that you need to take. Go ahead and pray now. Thirdly, would you pray and ask God to restore your joy? Ask him to, to give you a new song to sing, that you would have a testimony to share of what God has done in your life, of the freedom and the forgiveness that you found. And so pray and ask him to work in your heart to give you joy and peace. For some, you're here today and you've never truly been forgiven. You've never truly been set free. Remember, we're, we're all born sinners. You were born into a corrupt and a broken world and you've had sinful thoughts and behaviors from your earliest days and there is only one way to truly be restored. 
forgiveness and freedom can only be found in Christ Jesus. And, and God says, just simply follow me. And so I'm gonna invite you at this time, if that's you, and if you say, yes, I need to turn my life to Jesus, I need to trust him for the very first time, then I wanna lead you in a prayer. And you're not gonna pray alone. As a church family, we're gonna pray together as an encouragement for you. And, and prayer is just simply talking to God. But if that's you right now in this moment, would you repeat after me and would you pray, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner, but today I ask for your forgiveness. Would my heart break with sorrow for what I've done? Jesus, would you come into my life? Would you give me a clean heart? And would you be my Lord my savior and my forgiver. And in the best way that I know how, I will turn my back on my sin and I will give my life to you. Thank you for saving me. And if you prayed that prayer here today, uh, we want you to know that that is the best and the wisest decision that, that you could ever make. And we want to celebrate with you. We wanna come alongside of you as you continue to walk along in your journey. And for the rest of us, God, we, we come before you now and we just thank you that you are a God who is good. That no matter what we've done, no matter what is in our past, no matter what uh, we see in our future that is coming, God, that you are there with us, walking alongside of us in each and every step that we take. And so Father, we yield our hearts to you today. God, would you fill us with a heart full of joy and songs to sing, declaring of all that you've done and all that you will continue to do. God, we give you our hearts. We give you our spirit. We ultimately give you our lives. We thank you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. I'm gonna invite you to stand at this time. And regardless of what battle you've been fighting, or what battle maybe you've lost. I want for all of us here today, before we leave to declare that there is nothing else that we'll do, that we need God to do what only he can do. So let's lift up a shout of praise and song here this morning.